Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Joining us uh, for Nightlife News Breakdown is uh, Mark Kenny, Professor at the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, Canberra Times, political analyst and host of the Democracy Sausage podcast. Mark, good evening. Welcome back to Nightlife. Good evening, Philip. Pleasure to be here. Well, big news today, really, for Australia's strategic position and all of the argy-bargy that we're talking about in the uh, in the Pacific here with uh, with the government about to announce, although it's been so widely leaked, it's almost an announcement, isn't it, that Australia will apparently buy three to five uh, uh, Virginia-class submarines from the US as a stopgap before embarking on what's a highly vague and lack-of-detail uh, project of a new submarine, which is to be built with British hulls and American technology at some stage in the future. No one knows when. What are you making of this news? At some stage in the future and at some place in the future or mm. some place in the world. Mm. Um, yes, all will be revealed, I guess, is the best you can say about it. Um, some of this information has come out a bit before, I guess, Anthony Albanese's media handlers would necessarily like it to, hmm. um, but you know because he's he's doing other things, and we can come to that. But um, uh, what we what we get really came out from Reuters uh, this morning uh, when uh, some of the Reuters officials in the US had spoken to or Reuters journalists had spoken to US officials, and they'd got uh, you know sort of pretty specific specific information about uh, what Australia's uh, you know acquisitions will be, and it does turn out that we're having, in the good old Australian way, a bob each way. Mm. Um, you know, there had been long-term speculation about whether we were going to go with the uh, the US submarines, the so-called off-the-shelf option, or whether we'd uh, go to a, a, a British-designed boat or some such thing. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of speculation. And the, 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 the betting money, such as there was, seemed to have moved toward the latter of those two options recently that we were going to be getting a British boat, but it looks like what we're getting is both, really, and that's mm. an extraordinary... And these are nuclear submarines. I mean, this is an important point to make uh, going to your introduction about this being a big story. Stories don't get bigger than this, really, yeah. in, yeah. in the defence sense. And we're talking about potentially the sort of figures that are being thrown around are somewhere between 100 and $200 billion in terms of acquisitions over time, and who knows what is going to be involved in the, uh, the you know the far more sophisticated and 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 highly involved and uh, and presumably multi-party maintenance of these enormously sophisticated uh, machines as well. So um, yes, uh, a number of Virginia-class submarines, so-called sort of off-the-shelf option in the short term, which will begin even this decade with the forward positioning of US submarines in Australia, US nuclear submarines, as early as 2027. Can I ask you about, uh, can I ask you about that? Because, the guy, I mean, Mr Albanese was at pains almost from the very beginning to say, uh, emphasising where I think he senses the weakness in his position here is he says, don't worry, we're going to have full autonomy here. This, these will full be sovereignty full is the so word. Yes, yeah. and full sovereignty. When, well... You know, at a first glance, you'd say, well, hang on, we're going to be both harbouring and, and hosting US-operated and crewed uh, Virginia-class nuclear submarines in Australia, you know, very soon. They won't be Australian-manned. Uh, and then once we've bought these submarines when they come out of uh, US shipyards, which will be sometime after 2030, mm-hmm. uh, it'll be a long time before Australia's in a position, I would imagine, to crew and deploy them themselves and even then 
they are essentially going to be part of a forward projection of US force in Australia. And therefore, you know, as people have long criticised this whole development, it makes Australia as simply an integral part of US strategy in the Pacific. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that Australia is not anyway, but it really enmeshes us quite completely in this, doesn't it? It does. And one of the fears that people have or have expressed is this idea that uh, with such enmeshment, such coordination between us and a major and dominant power such as the US, with, which holds the whip hand in terms of the, the delivery, the provision of and the maintenance of, of these, uh, these, this equipment, uh, that we may be lent, on, lent upon uh, to uh, deploy our, our resources um, in ways that might not always put our interests exclusively first. Hmm. Uh, you know, people talk about uh, Singapore and, and, uh, and what the British wanted us to do and chiefly eventually, you know, sort of uh, declaring that uh, he was going to pull Australian troops back to defend the Australian uh, homeland um, and, you know, whether we'd get into that kind of situation. So... I think it's interesting that the Prime Minister uses the term sovereignty because people are suggesting, you know, the questions that are coming to him are about whether or not we could be told, you know, you can't deploy your submarines there. We need them as part of the force over here, mm. uh, you know, by the US. And he, he responds with, with the word sovereignty. Now, it's not a word in, in common usage in the street, sovereignty. Uh, and I, I would have thought if he wanted to convince people, look, there's absolutely no way that any submarine or any vessel will ever be under the command of anyone other than Australia. If he wanted to say that, that's what he could say. Um, so maybe there's a, an abundance of caution here. Maybe they don't want to give away too much or whatever. But uh, it just feels a bit, it feels a bit kind of um, uh, special the way this is being put at the moment. And there's a lot of details that need to be filled in. I guess mm. we're going to get them next week or at least start to get them. Yes, well, hopefully, hopefully we'll get some more detail next week. And, gee, you'd like some more detail on this other one, the, the submarine that doesn't exist, uh, yes. which is the, the apparently the, that uh, we are told that the UK is considering, well, sorry, not considering, is going to build uh, a new version of the Astute-class submarine in Barrow and Finesse. Indeed, at the announcement next week, uh, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is going to be there too in San Diego as part of this announcement. Uh, mm. But this submarine doesn't actually exist y y yet. Uh, it's a new submarine, it's supposed to be bigger, uh, and, and incorporating American weapons technology. Well, uh, as we know with these weapons projects, they take donkey's years to ever see the light of day, don't they? Yeah, and they sometimes they take donkey's years and sometimes look like camels. Mm. Uh, that's the trouble. I mean, these are the you know I've, I've heard people say things like, "There's only one more you know the only thing more complex than." And a submarine in in existence is the International Space Station. Hmm. That that they are enormously complicated, enormously sophisticated. They take great expertise to run, to maintain, to deploy effectively, and so forth. We don't have any of that expertise, or or, or a good portion of it, at the moment in this country. Now, perhaps that's part of the logic of this forward deployment of of US submarines that they'll be partly crewed by Australians that Australians will be being trained on them for a number of years before we uh, take delivery of ones that we are in full command of ourselves and and then of course as you say there's this whole next layer it, it seems bizarre really that we go from a, a situation of having no nuclear submarines just the you know just the, the the ones that we have at the moment the Collins class we know they're coming to an end uh, sort of in the early 1930s, you know, at the sort of extended life. Um, 
there was always going to be this so-called capability gap, and that's what a lot of this has been about. And the way we're getting around that seems to be this ultra-complicated way where we're getting two different types of submarines, as you say, different sizes. We're getting, presumably, we're getting a Leyland, Leyland and Ford, by the look of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully it's not a P-76 <laughs> uh, <laughs> because, you know, they're sort of spontaneously catches on fire. It doesn't tend to be such of a problem in submarines, although I think in a nuclear submarine mm. it's definitely something you want to avoid. Um, but, yeah, it, you can just see the complexity of this program, the idea of getting these uh, these uh, American ones first and then being involved in a tripartite design of a whole new platform um, and all of the problems that can come with that, and we know there's a long lead time and therefore, you know, uh, strategic circumstances change, technology changes and so forth, you know, contractors come and go uh, uh, anything can happen, really. Mm, mm. And the the record in this country of uh, large defence acquisitions is an extremely patchy one. I mean, pa- patchy as in sort of mostly bad. From the F-111 onwards. I suppose, yeah. look, I suppose not to be relentlessly negative about this, <laughs> being positive about it, it, does, it is. I mean, I said it's important today because it is. This will single-handedly, if, we, if they, when these, these are acquired, will, will hugely enhance Australia's strike and defensive capability, weren't they? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it it provides us with a capability that uh, just hasn't mm. existed before, uh, submarines that can move around the region, stay underwater for extended lengths of time, can go undetected and so forth, at least at this stage, in as much as the technology exists for their detection. Mm. Uh, but, of course, you know, that's, uh, that's always uh, a, an environment changing as well. And there's a lot of um, drone... Uh, warfare capability that's being developed by by powers. I heard only today that um, uh, that the Chinese Navy is now larger than the US Navy. I, I remember not so many years ago, uh, strategic uh, experts, you know, pointing out that you know the the, the Chinese Navy was um, a minnow compared to the giant mm. US capability, and now we're. Uh, we're told that it's actually larger already. So, although, well, you know, I know, although, although, although critics say it may be larger, but it's nowhere near as capable, and mm. and that may that may well be right. Although, for how long that's right is, of course, another matter. Moving, mm. look, moving to where else the prime minister is at the moment. Actually, he's in San Diego next week for the subs announcement, but of course, he's in um, in India at the moment, which is uh, another member of an alliance of a different kind, the Quad Alliance, of course with uh, the, UK, the US, Australia, India and Japan, uh, with Narendra Modi. And he appeared to be almost uh, supporting as a bit player in one of Modi's election rallies today before the, the, uh, the, la- the latest uh, Test cricket match. But yes. this is interesting, though, isn't it? Because uh, India uh, almost inevitably will not be supporting uh, the US in any military action in the Pacific, in, in uh, the Indo-Pacific, including against Taiwan, will they? No, that's true. The, the, India has a long tradition of uh, independence uh, strategically. It was, of course, part of that non-aligned movement back in the, whenever it was, the 60s and, and, and after that. Um, and uh, it uh, has still has relatively strong and healthy links with Russia, for example. It has its own enmities with China, uh, which which uh, continue to exist, but yes, it's unlikely to. Uh, I mean, India is trying to be, you know, be a part of. Is very happy, I, I guess, to be a part of the Quad and and to develop the kinds of uh, lucrative 
relationships that it can have with countries like Australia and particularly the US. Um, but I don't think we're going to see it uh, being part of the sort of alliance uh, that we're talking about with AUKUS, for example. No, exactly right. All right, just uh, on a few domestic matters too, um, the interest rate uh, I- issue. So, I mean, it looks as though, well, it may be the last of the interest rate rises. We'll see. Philip Lowe, I think, is, um, is you know, enjoying the view from the office until September when he probably won't be replaced, you'd imagine. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, let, let's be optimistic for a potential pause on interest rates, I would imagine, wouldn't you? Well, I think the pause is probably right. I think that uh, because there's such a long lag time in monetary policy that uh, the, the board is of the view that, you know, it, it's very, it wants to be very careful, particularly given the, the, the Reserve Bank's pretty patchy recent history in this area of kind of uh, forward advising on things. I think it, it, it's getting a lot of advice, probably more advice than it's ever had before from um, from all quarters about what it should do, even some reasonably direct advice advice from government, which is, uh, you know, not, not all that um, sort of common. Mm. Uh, and I think the Reserve Bank wants to now, uh, you know, get to a point where it can say, well, we've, we've sort of dialed in a lot of restraint, a lot of contractionary force on the economy to slow it down. We see evidence of that happening and but we know this, that's going to continue for a while and at some point we need to stop so that we can assess the effect of that and, you know, avoid that problem of, of having gone too far and only finding out about it when you've well gone too far. Um, so th- th- that seems to be what Philip Lowe is saying at the moment. Uh, you're right to say that it, it's, it's positive to think about a pause, but um, I think as long as that pause then results in the bank deciding that, yes, we've done enough, um, whereas I think there's few, there's a few economists around saying that, look, that might mean that there'll be a, a bit of a reprieve for a couple of months, but then the board will get back into it and, and do another couple. And there are some global reasons why that might be the case as well. So, yeah, it's unfortunately a pretty pretty mm. grim outlook anyway, unless there's uh, unless we find some golden narrow path to the north. Yeah. Exactly. Finally, robo debt. The, the this is a story that's been. I, I, look, I, I know from you know being on air and talking to people over the last few years uh, that it, it's it's big in the in in people's minds because of the you know huge chaos and damage that it, uh, it wrecked amongst a lot of people on uh, a lot of very vulnerable people too, and uh, the evidence from the robo debt royal commission has not been very pretty. Uh, no. The question of what is or you know what will the consequences be? I, I suspect that people are going to be wanting some consequences here, aren't they? They are going to be. This has been uh, there's been some just extraordinary evidence adduced uh, mm. from particularly from victims of this unlawful program of uh, income averaging to uh, raise debts on on people and and reverse the onus of proof, which is perhaps its most egregious. Uh, device really to to simply hit people with these multi thousand dollar debts and put the onus on them to prove that they don't owe that money from perhaps some years back in terms of uh, you know when they were getting welfare and 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 what uh, whether that what their income was at, at the time according to some according to what the government insists it was and of course we know the government was using this income averaging algorithm which was just not a lawful process so the evidence that's come up has been extraordinary from people it's also been an unedifying process in terms of uh, the evidence coming from from former ministers we've seen Scott Morrison we've seen 
Malcolm Turnbull, we've seen Stuart Robert and, and others uh, step forward, Alan Tudge. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it hasn't particularly uh, from Stuart Robert the other day, it was just appalling, really, mm. to have a minister saying that he felt that his, even when he had supreme doubts about the, um, about the ethics and lawfulness uh, accuracy of this process, even though he harboured those doubts himself, Cabinet solidarity was more important than 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 doing the right thing. Then, and these were you know people being persecuted by their own government. And the minister said, you know, just said, well, I had a responsibility to cabinet solidarity, which is, you know, pretty appalling. So I reckon there's um there's, there has to be um, serious consequences arising from this royal commission. But it will be interesting to see what they will be. Whether there'll be recommendations for criminal prosecutions, for example. Uh, who knows? Mm, indeed. All right, Mark, it's been good to talk. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.